For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Anyone else obsessed with mindfulness? said that in a bit of a disingenuous way. It's not like I'm actually nailing this stuff at all. I did download the Headspace app and I did use it about twice and then just got bored. But I do feel the universe is pushing me towards meditation and tapping into our connectivity with the whole. I mean, to be honest, the closest I get to being super mindful is to watch Russell Brand's little videos on Twitter. (laughs) Probably doesn't count, hey. But I bet loads of you our meditation practitioners or our yoga buffs or are just trying to be more mindful in terms of your everyday decisions. But how often do you connect mindfulness with fashion? I don't think it's something we talk about too often. And that's kind of funny because if the opposite of sustainable fashion is thoughtless fashion or thoughtlessly buying more and more clothes and then thoughtlessly getting rid of them after just a few wears, then surely mindfulness has a place. I like how Emma Watson said it when she guest edited Australian Vogue. She said, now is the time for thoughtful fashion. So I've been doing a bit of Googling and just trying to find out where the kind of stories are around mindful fashion. And surprise, surprise, it tends to focus on getting dressed and picking out your outfits more mindfully. And then there's the other side of it, which is making mindfully. And I know that many of you are sewers and knitters and embroiderers and menders and makers. And of course, there is mindfulness in handwork. But thinking about mindfulness when it comes to the fashion system or the politics of fashion is much rarer. Our guest today is very keen on this idea. She is my good friend, the journalist Bandana Tuari. Formerly Vogue India's editor-at-large, she now writes for Business of Fashion and she travels the world talking about India's rich fashion craft traditions. And this episode definitely delves into that, but from rather a unique perspective because Bandana has been developing a theory around what we can learn from Mahatma Gandhi about mindfulness in fashion. It was Gandhi who led the Khadi movement, which united Indians in opposition to British colonial rule. She talks about mindful luxury and its links with craft and politics. She unpacks the idea of sartorial integrity and offers, and this is really interesting, a way for us now to think back on Gandhi's activism, but through today's context of consumerism. And it's fascinating stuff. I hope I'm sounding even half coherent. I got off a plane at 5am this morning from London. I'm feeling kind of not very mindful and a little bit crazy. (laughs) Anyway, how are you enjoying the podcast? 
I'd love to thank all of our new listeners and our existing listeners. It's so exciting to grow this community and I'm so grateful to you all for listening and tuning in. Don't forget to hit subscribe if you're on iTunes and please consider rating and reviewing the show. You can also find us on Spotify and Stitcher and on my website, clairepress.com. And that's also where you should head to sign up for Wardrobe Crisis News, which will come into your inbox every Thursday. But now... Let's get mindful with Bandana Tuari. Bandana, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. We're just in bed together. Actually, we're in separate beds together. (laughs) We are indeed in your beautiful city, Sydney. We are recording this in a hotel room before you do a talk, which we're going to get into later. But I wanted to start, because we're both fashion journalists, by asking you what you're wearing and then you can ask me. Well, I'm wearing one of my favorite things in the world, which I've had for many, many years. It's a waistcoat that is made by hand. It really just says India the moment you see it. It's made by one of my favorite designers who lives in Calcutta called Anamika Khanna. And I carry this waistcoat everywhere because I wear it with daggy t-shirts. It looks beautiful. I wear it with my, like what I'm doing right now with a 20-year-old jeans. And it, I think it looks okay. Is it all done by hand, that embroidery? It's all done by hand. And it's beautifully cut. And it just has this lovely vintage feel about it. So even if it fades over time, it still rocks. What are you wearing? I'm wearing vintage. So I always think it's interesting how clothes tell stories. And I love the idea that you can find things that already exist that are just as good as new things. I do buy new things. But right now I'm wearing a vintage 1980s dress that I picked up in just a little vintage store in Surrey Hills. And it's silk and it's a really beautiful print. You might know more I than know, me. I know, I felt it. Like it's, a, what sort of print is that? It's, I mean, it's got paisley, lots of paisleys. But do you think it could be like a hand? I mean, what? how have we done it, this? It looks like it's sort of block printed. Yeah, it could be. In silk with a little bit of quilting around your neck and your wrist, which is beautiful. It is a good guy. And I just love that there's so much out there and that we don't need to be cookie cutter fashionistas who only wear what mags tell us to wear, even though we both have a background. Yeah, we, and me we still both in have them, a in mags. seriously commercial background in fashion. But, you know, it's a beautiful journey, right? I think if I hadn't done all that, especially I mean, I've done it for 13 years, I was with Vogue India and I loved every minute of it. It taught me everything, gave me the best opportunities. I met the most brilliant minds in design. And how many of us can say I sat next to Karl Lagerfeld and interviewed him and John Galliano and Gautier. So I feel privileged beyond. But I think I needed to go through that entire cycle to also realize that if I'm going to be on a sustainable journey, then I can't give with one hand and take from the other. Like I've got to be somewhat of a purist. So I, of course, very gratefully resigned and said that, you know, I would like to be a champion and activist for sustainability. The whole idea of our day-to-day lives about sustainability is about conscious consumption, not conspicuous consumption. And for that, it requires a mindset. And I, I love this journey. And I promise you this journey would have not occurred had it not been in high fashion for that long. It's so interesting to talk to you about this. We have had similar trajectories in that we both worked commercially in a kind of straightforward fashion journalism sense and then both pivoted to really focus on sustainability. I'm doing it inside and you're doing it slightly more outside, although you still write for the business of fashion, you still contribute to lots of publications. Yeah, I do. It really wasn't about me extracting myself from, you know, a massive 
magazine conglomerate to be able to have a voice. That's, that really wasn't it. But my whole lifestyle changed when I left Bombay for Bali. My, my daughter now goes to a sustainable school called the Green School in Ubud. So it was not just a decision about changing my journey professionally, but my entire lifestyle. Can you imagine I left a city where I had clout, I had a social standing, I left a city of 22 million people and I go and live in a jungle. So it was a complete lifestyle change. I literally gave away 90% of my Vogue goodies accumulated over 13 years. I had clothes which still had tags on. Did you? you know? Absolutely. Ooh. And so I gave away and I felt gross about myself because you know there's a great book that everyone should read called Stuffocation I've read it you've read it yeah. right I mean we are suffocated by the stuff that we accumulate and I felt a certain amount of disgust for myself that what was the need for me to be such a hoarder so I gave away my stuff and reached Bali with my daughter and three suitcases between really? the two of us so it was a huge mind shift not just a professional shift and here I am talking about sustainability with you, Claire. <laughs> Let's talk about mindfulness, though. Where do you practice mindfulness and how do you do it? Well, you know, I'd, I'd be a saint if I said that I was so mindful. The reason I voice it aloud is always, always a reminder that I've got to be more mindful. By certain practices, I don't buy anything right now. It's been almost two years that I've bought anything. And so that for me is a conscious choice of not engaging right now because, you know, I think to myself, we all go on great diets, right, just to keep ourselves fit. Why do we worry when we don't have to buy for a while? You go on a fashion diet for a while, you know. But I was I, thinking you must be a beach meditator. I am a meditator, but it's sporadic. Uh, when I'm good, I'm very, very good. And when I'm bad, I just don't do it for a month. And then it's a vicious cycle, right? Then I, I, then I start feeling a little disgruntled about myself and feeling incomplete. And then I realize what made me really happy was being able to dedicate even 15 minutes of my time in a day to meditating. It's actually work, isn't it? That stuff, it's mind work and you have to commit to it and it's not for the lazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for people like us who travel all the time, you know, we make so many excuses. Oh, I'm traveling now. When I get home, I'll do something. So I think mindfulness is an everyday practice, no matter where you are. And one of the best ways to start really is to meditate. And this is not a religious ritual by any means. You know, it's just quietening your mind, period. You are here with the Sherman Centre for Culture and Ideas to give a talk at the Museum of Sydney tonight. It's a really interesting topic. And the topic is mindful fashion. What do you mean by that? So the whole idea of mindfulness is being conscious of everything that you do in your life. And because we are such consumers living in a very consumerist world, then we have got to be conscious about how and why we buy things, right? Do we really need it or are we just following the sort of the rat race of consumerism? Now, tonight's talk, for instance, I use Gandhi as part of my talk about fashion, which seems so incongruous because Gandhi had a huge journey with clothes. His relationship with clothes is very profound and very symbolic and it's not repeated anywhere in the history. 
the, the political history of the world. So Gandhi started off wanting to be a complete English gentleman when he was studying in England. He, always, he was actually embarrassed to be Indian and learned how to play the piano, took elocution classes and played the violin just to make sure that he looked gentrified and wanted to wear his three-piece suit. I was going to say, those and, high collars, those sort of Edwardian high, stuffy, starched white collars that were separate to the shirt and he put them on with a stud at the back. Absolutely. Very buttoned-up suit. Absolutely. What else? And um, his journey, wanting to be an English gentleman, started in England. And then when he goes to South Africa to practice law, that's when he sees there are two kinds of Indians in South Africa at that time. Gentrified human beings like him, who were lawyers in the service world, and then there were the indentured labourers, basically the menial labourers. But because of the bigoted government at that time, they clubbed all Indians together. So they're the ones who would be building your roads and they looked poor, they were poor, and they were marginalised completely. And don't forget, this was South Africa at the time when it was. It was a very bigoted government and very racist at that time. But it didn't matter to the government, the white government at that time, that they just clubbed all the Indians together. Well, why and was Gandhi there? Gandhi was practising law there. So he finished learning in England. He studied law in England and he practised in South Africa. So he has this whole... 20 years, actually, in South Africa where he struggles to understand why is it that even though he looks like a gentleman, he's not accepted as a gentleman. He gets booted out of a train and he realizes even his three-piece suit and even his first-class ticket was not good enough for the government. His first-class education, his first-class brain, isn't it dreadful? It did not matter. Till he meets an endangered laborer who has been beaten black and blue, holding his head bleeding, and that left an indelible mark in Gandhi's mind. And that's when he decided to change. He thought of himself as being very pompous about his own attire. And so for literally 20 years, he started working with communities. He worked as a nurse in the Boer War to understand the suffering of people. And what happened in that process was he gave up his gentrified Western clothing, and he started wearing a white kurta, which is the white tunic, and the white dhoti, which is the white sarong. And that was his first exposure of his sartorial integrity, that he had made a huge mind shift about identity, about poverty, about identifying with people who were marginalized and were disenfranchised from communities. So that move was very significant sartorially. Now, after he does his 20 years in South Africa, but by the time he actually fought for the Indians, got both parties, the rich Indians and the poor Indians, to come together to fight the bigoted government that we talk about, when he finishes off his work there, he goes to India, which is in the throes of colonization. Mm. And he travels the length and breadth of the country. And he realizes the whole village economy has been uprooted by British colonization, right? So this is when he starts the Khadi movement. Now, khadi is a hand-spun, hand-woven fabric. It's grown very locally, regionally, all over India. It's cotton. It's cotton. And the khadi movement became a symbol for what's called swaraj, which means uh, self-reliance. It became a political tool for the dignity of labor. So khadi, cotton, grown abundantly in India, one of the biggest exporters at that time. So the British colonizers would buy the cotton at very cheap rates, send them to the mills in Lancashire in UK, make what would now be called fast fashion. You know, they were factory-made garments. 
and then sent back to India and sold at a premium to Indians. So it ruined the textile industry of India, which was one of the biggest, because India is a rural economy, you know. So basically the market is being flooded by cheap imports the other way around. Mass-produced. And at the time it became a symbol for colonial oppression and an instrument of control. Absolutely. So Gandhi made, he implored the entire nation to say, burn the clothes from the mills and pick up the spindle, the spinning wheel and weave your own clothes. So that was the Khadi movement. Can you imagine thousands of villages all across India? They burnt the clothes and they picked up the spinning wheel and as a symbolic gesture for freedom and a non-violent gesture of freedom, that's what they did. They started spinning their own cloth and today in the Indian flag, if you see right in the middle, the spinning wheel is right in the middle because it played such a crucial role. Now, the most important part about this story is that when he asked people to burn the clothes, he realized that he was asking the poorest of the poor who didn't even have clothes to burn. And at that time, he was ashamed about how little he knew about human suffering. That's when he gives up his tunic too, and he wears the loincloth only. So when you think of Mahatma Gandhi right now, the first image comes, he's bare-chested, And he's wearing just that frugal white cloth, the khadi cloth, wrapped around his waist called the loincloth. And that was the biggest sartorial change that made him identify with the poorest of the poor. So when Winston Churchill meets him in London, dressed like that, and called him the half-naked fakir, fakir, which means the poorest of the poor, Gandhi took it as a compliment. Because he said, now there's a moral transparency that comes from what I wear. Now you do know that I am a fakir because I identify with the poorest of the poor. So it's a compelling story. Gosh, isn't it? And I think when we consider um, so many things, when we talk about fashion revolution today, where we're encouraging people to ask about the origins and the ethics behind who makes our clothes and how they do it, but then also about how we judge each other on our clothes, how our clothes can speak before we do, what our clothes represent It's a phenomenal story. It's about the shaping of a nation. And it's extremely interesting to see cloth at the center of it, isn't it? Absolutely. Look at, at, you know, whether it's for good, bad or worse, whether you're talking about the uniform of ISIS, they use their clothes to signify what they signify, right? Whether it's the clothes of monks. And the, the clothes that play such a huge part in conveying what you are viscerally, you know Cecil Beaton? I do. There's a great quote where he says, when you wake up in the morning and you decide what you want to wear, you treat yourself as a work of art. You're the first, you're your own canvas. And it's so true. Whether we do it inadvertently or you're completely blasé about it, there is a way we want to approach the world by what we choose to wear. For those of us who are privileged enough to live without the threat of oppression or in systems where we don't have to struggle daily in order to make our voices heard, we think about clothes as being a way of celebrating gorgeousness, of, you know, finding our sartorial identity so that we can relate to each other, but in a really kind of light way. This is life and death stuff too. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about uniforms and ISIS and tribalism in that way. Like, where do you find the people you fit with, but also how do you express your shared values? It can be really deep stuff, can't it? I I truly believe that, you know, because if you start looking at clothes from sort of a sociological, anthropological lens and not just the lens of Paris Fashion Week 
that you know it's it's phenomenal how powerful and impactful your clothes are and yet i'm sure in your time people have said to you fashion's not very serious stuff they've certainly said it to me oh all the time it happens with my close relatives and it's impossible to convince people that um i'm in a serious business thank you for sharing that story what do you think we can learn from it that is applicable to fashion today in gandhi's journey the sartorial journey towards finding some sort of moral compass through his clothes he followed a lot of principles and one of them is at the heart of sustainability and it's called ahimsa which means non-violence non-violence in your thoughts actions and deeds and he himself gandhi himself said you know ahimsa is not a garment that you put on and off at will it must sit in the heart you know so it has to come from an ideological place that there has to be a certain belief that is rooted in your very being because you cannot believe in sustainability on a peripheral level you really have to care about your environment you must care that as an individual you do make an impact so from gandhi the biggest learning is ahimsa which by the way influenced some of the biggest movements the green movement the slow fashion movement the e- economics of em schumacher um, what hey what em schumacher is was an economist and was fascinated by gandhi and so you know gandhi gandhi was not used you know he was an academic he talked about politics policies across the whole spectrum of existence and so his idea of economics is very contrarian he didn't believe in the centralized government for instance he believed that all villages should be empowered as republics did like, he yeah here's a quote from him which i actually pilfered from some of your work you've quoted this before and it is the world has enough for everyone's needs but not for everyone's greed oh my gosh i mean i love that quote because it really stings you right because it's so true to the way we live today the world makes 150 billion garments a year we're closing in on having 8 billion of us on this planet and let's face it half those people are not getting new clothes are they mm. so we're getting the lion's share of them who are spoilt and greedy in the so-called west well also you know what i find quite shocking is that there's so much of clothes that are dumped in developing nations because you know the western world doesn't want to fill their landfills so it's sent to you know countries in the east and um i was thinking about that before when we talked about the historical story of cheap british made indian cotton clothes flooding the indian market and now of course that's what happens with fast fashion that it just gets shipped to africa where people who are less picky right can buy these clothes very cheaply but also at the same time it decimates local textile local, markets absolutely that happens in india too you know does it it takes away from the local manufacturers because there's a whole second hand smuggling business that takes place from the clothes that are dumped from the west But I also think it is very important for us and interesting for us to start to think a little bit more about responsibility and about where our clothes do end up when we've turfed them out because they don't just disappear just because they've gone from us. No, they don't disappear. And once you start worrying about where do your clothes go, then you start wondering where does that straw go? You know, every time I, I chuck a toothpaste, where does it go? Like it's it's actually mind-boggling, right? 
Where does all this come from in you, Vandana? Because I want to rewind. I was doing some digging around looking for stories about you and I found something from the New York Times, which at the time, it was 10 years ago about that, and you were then in the fashion editor role at Vogue India. And the article began, Bandana Tiwari grew up in the foothills of the Himalayas studying Victorian literature from Irish and Nepalese nuns. Correct. <laughs> what? Tell us the story. I was in a Gothic convent for 10 years in Darjeeling where the beautiful tea comes from, belting out Shakespeare as we watch tequila sunsets against the Kanchenjunga. I mean, I could not have asked for a more idyllic childhood. It was an inner blighten book. Mallory Towers, tuck shops, pajama parties, writing poetry, you know. I have thought about Mallory Towers in years. I read because, that. Yeah, <laughs> literally, we were writing poetry and drama pieces, sitting on some strange person's grave because there was this chrysanthemum blossom overhead. It was just romantic, you know. So it sort of fueled the imagination. And I think to an extent, my writing, the interest in being descriptive, observing the world differently, poetically, if perhaps, comes from my childhood. I mean, I went to church for like 10 years. It's not like I belong to the Christian faith or any for that matter, but we just loved going to church because the stained glass windows and the grotto and Mother Mary. I mean, what wasn't there to love for a, for a girl in pinafores yeah. and pigtails? God, what did your parents do? My father's an engineer who was responsible for putting electricity in the most remote parts of the Himalayas. So quite an exemplary man. And then he joined politics. Mum, wonderful housewife who raised four girls into very feisty, fierce human beings. By the way, two of which live in Sydney and one is in Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, you know, just... I wouldn't say it was a regular life because we were all carted off to boarding school, so we came home for three months a year. But a happy childhood. What did you wear? I mean, you invoked some school uniform, which I'm not sure if that's got a no lovely nostalgia attached to it, but when oh, yeah. did you fall for fashion and how? Well, because we wore uniforms in school right? The idea of wearing what we call coloured clothes was like delicious. And you were allowed to wear coloured clothes perhaps just three times a year. One for your birthday and two, maybe one was for Christmas, you know, that sort of thing. So we had a very swanky, like very sharp looking uniform. So we looked really cool. It was grey blazers and we had to have naughty boy shoes for weekdays and Mary Janes for weekends. It does weekends. very English and colonial. Of English. Of no, but course. talking of that, like that's what I, it I went to Loretta Convent. These yeah. schools were built so that, you know, during uh, British colonizer, during British Raj, it's all the, the kids of the English gentlemen would be sent to Darjeeling where the weather was fine. You actually, Darjeeling mimicked the English weather. You know, it was yeah. gloomy, yeah. you had rain, it but was cold. But then you were like a product of a throwback to that Gandhi time. I mean, going to those schools in those places, I mean, it's kind of... I did not have a Gandhian upbringing whatsoever, you know. It's, in fact, I learned history books that were written by if I may say so, by the colonizers. Yeah. So I didn't learn history in the way that it was true for this country. Yes. Oh, my God. But all this stuff around how we frame history and around who tells the story of a particular place and how warped it is when it's told by the wrong people that aren't the owners of the story. Yeah. Fascinating, right? Yeah. I mean, just think about it. Not only is it biased because, you know, it's written by a different race, but it's also written only by men. Mm -hmm. Like, at least while I was growing up, I can literally tell you, maybe there was 
I don't even remember any book that was written by women. Like a history book? Yeah, so history is gender biased. So where, okay, so interesting thinking about that kind of texture of your upbringing, because these days you're a social justice warrior, a fashion revolutionary, someone who's constantly looking at fashion through the lens of power imbalance and how we can rectify that and all of those things that are just so woke. Where did it come from in you? Because it didn't come from school, hey? No, it didn't come from (laughs) school, funnily enough. I think, you know, growing up in India, I'm not saying everyone feels this way, but working in high-end fashion in India can be tricky because, you know, you could be selling $20,000 watch in a magazine and if you literally take one step back and think that $20,000 can give electricity to 500 homes in a village for a year. So the value of that product. So when you start getting into that loop of thinking, then everything became a problem for me. Mm. Then it just became despicable that you would want to buy a dress that costs so much. And it's not the only dress that you'll ever buy. You're adding on to 30 other dresses that you've already got, but you think twice about giving to charity. The wedding industry is fascinating in India because it's not always only the rich people who are spending money. Families who are middle class, for instance, will save for a lifetime to be able to splurge on a wedding, right? So given the economic status of a family in middle class India, you'd be surprised how much they are willing to spend on a wedding and how much jewelry that they're willing to buy, how much gold they're going to trade in. The other side, the perhaps more inspiring side for our purposes of some of the lavishness of Indian fashion is the craft angle. So let's not talk about like sky high crazy prices and the gap between rich and poor. Let's talk about the richness of the work and how much effort and beauty and craft goes into some of this stuff. I have to say there's been an amazing resurrection of Indian craft in bridal wear. So till about 10 years back, it was like you'd wear an Indian wedding dress and it would be bombarded with Swarovski crystals, right? Layers upon layers. But now it's like being able to work with craft, find a beautiful antiquated craft from a region in India, and there's so much to choose from, Mm. to have that on what we call the lenga, which is a beautiful skirt, the wedding skirt. That's becoming quite the norm now, you know, which is great because it uplifts the artisanal community. The wedding market, which is so huge, now contributes to the well-being and the upkeep of the artisanal communities in India. You've done so much work in this space and you've visited so many incredible people doing wonderful handwork. Can you tell us some of those stories? Oh my gosh, where do we start? I mean, that's how I discovered you actually, because I was reading your work, because you tell, you know, you go out there and see embroiderers or you see people doing tie-dye work around a mustard seed. Yes. It's so interesting. In Rajasthan, the tie-dye is so profound the way they do it and if ever you buy a tie-dye which is called bandhani in Rajasthani is that you make sure that the dots are very tiny but literally because, a mustard seed is so small it, traditionally they would tie the mustard seed can you imagine thousands of mustard seeds on this fabric and then dip dyed the tie-dye and so the value of your fabric would be judged by how tiny the dots were because if it was authentic, then you knew that the mustard seeds were used. Now, if they're bigger ones, then, you know, it's not the real traditional way of doing it. Then there is the other one, which is from Ahmedabad in Gujarat, called the double ikat, called the patola. Sometimes it takes about 
four years to weave what's the sari yardage, wow. you know, which is about six meters. And um, it's excruciating. If you just, just YouTube how they do it, you'll have tears in your eyes because it is painstakingly brutal. I mean, I find it brutal when you're looking at it because it, how much patience and mindfulness do you have to have to spend that much time over this beautiful piece of fabric? But the one thing people forget is weaving was very much part of everyday life. You know, it wasn't like you went to a factory to weave. You had a loom in your house. So you'd go cook in the kitchen, weave a little bit. And then, the you know, a 16-year-old boy would go play cricket in the field, come back and weave. Then the grandfather would weave a bit. It was, it was very much what the family did. It's literally the fabric of community. Absolutely. It was very much the fabric of the community. For instance, if you go to Maheshwar, which is a stunning place to go and see the Maheshwari silks. In fact, Burberry once made a trench coat when I did that Project Renaissance with Indian crafts and international designers, Christopher Bailey, I sent him this beautiful dull gold, which almost mimics the kind of khaki that he uses for his Burberry trench coats. And he made a stunning, stunning trench coat from this beautiful silk. So if you go to Maheshwar, which is in central India in Indore, you literally go into a temple town. There's a river flowing below, temple bells like just clanging along, and you've got weavers literally right across, you know. And you can walk in and you'll see home after home have looms. You mentioned that amazing Project Renaissance that you did where you approached some of the biggest, most famous designers from Italy and from the UK and then connected them with Indian craftspeople. Tell us about that. My gosh, that was my passion project. No one thought I could pull it off because, you know, designers, as we know, they want to stick to their own DNA, right? But I just took a big chance and went to different villages, sat with the communities, took photos on my stupid phone, like, you know, like mm-hmm. really rough PDFs of just my experience playing with the kids, sitting with the grandmother, sitting with the weavers and took these photos and I was in Taipei to interview Christopher Bailey, who's the designer, creative director for Burberry at the time. And after this very tech-savvy interview that we did, because it was in Taipei, I just showed him my silly PDF and I said, do you know, two days back, I was in this village and look at the fabric from there. I said, could I possibly send this to you? And he said, and he's such a darling, you know, he's such a wonderful man. He said, absolutely, send it. The moment I sent it to him, then it was easy to call up Gucci and say, Burberry's doing it, you should do it. <laughs> and then when Gucci said yes, that it was easy to go to all the other designers, and I got 32 designers. You went to, to Miss Sony? Miss Sony, Fendi, Ferragamo, um, Christian Louboutin, uh, Roger Vivier, Hermes, I mean, there were 30, Peter Pelotto, mm. Prabhul Gurung, Bipo Mopatra, Naim Khan. <laughs> I mean, the whole show. Amazing. And then it the was, results were this wonderful kind of melange of these very, very fine worked crafts materials, but then with this more obviously modern design trajectory. Well, what they did was they stayed true to their own design DNA. So, you know, if Ferragamo used the fabric for a bag, they used it on the latest bag that they just developed, but they used the Indian fabric. And of course, because I know all these brands well, I, my biggest joy was sort of seeing which fabric would go best. So, for instance, sending Missoni, because we know the weaves of Missoni. And zigzags. This, zigzags. But we also have an amazing embroidery weave in India called Chicken Curry. And called what? I, I seriously thought you just said chicken curry. It's called, it sounds like chicken curry, <laughs> but it's not. It's chicken curry. Curry means like the it? work. C-H-I-K-E-N-K-A-R-I. Right. Yeah. 
chicken curry curry means like workmanship yeah. basically and um if you saw that design that misoni made with you you think that it is a misoni fabric yeah. it's a beautiful red isn't it Yes, yes, that's the one. You're absolutely right. That makes me think about a conversation you know I had a while back and you opened my eyes to something I had not known, which was that many big name designers have for years, for decades, used Indian master embroiderers and craftspeople on their couture or on their really high-end collections, but they never credited them. So, tell us about that. Yeah, I write a lot about this and I've done that for business of fashion. in a few of the pieces but yeah traditionally and even now everyone from the time of mr dior to yves saint laurent they've come to india to take the best of embroiderers and embellishers which is not to say they didn't pay them well they were paid well but maybe it was the times they were never credited the only person to tell you the truth who's made collection after collection in india and in fact in his in his logo i think it says made in india is dries van noten is about to say yeah, yeah. i think Incredible. you told me that yeah. but um it's interesting isn't it because obviously when you think of a big couture house or a big name paris brand like dior of course they're talking about dior being the architect of all of the wonder but also equally of course it isn't of course they send it to different crafts people in different places but i think it's interesting now that the tide is turning towards people wanting to understand more about the real stories behind how stuff's made yeah absolutely and don't forget a lot of the times it is the embellishments it is the embroidery that makes the garment and so how can you not at least talk about it we get as journalists we know we get reams and reams of pr material could you not put one line and say you know this wonderful embroidery is done in india by indian artisans has it traditionally also been a political thing because it is a power imbalance thing and it comes back to the horrible thing of colonialism that you know we exploit your work and we take um, i'm yeah. not saying that with regards to a particular house but just as a system we've got to stop looking at each other's nations as just nations to be pillaged plundered, for for plundered yeah. for their goods you know or for everything for cheap resources to great expertise in embroidery you and i recently spoke in melbourne at a lovely event that was put on by a mutual friend of ours caroline poiner shout out to caroline she is the Yay, best caroline she runs something called artisans of fashion and we'll share a link but what she does is hooks up incredible artisanal craft producers with fashion labels here for example romance was born which we i loved ah oh, so good right And I love romances born. Tell about how they work with weavers in Varanasi, don't they? They work with weavers in Varanasi and for me I I actually tell Indian designers I, I said this is an exemplary brand. You know, they're not taking away from their own design DNA. They're creative people and they have their own identity, but they also know how to work with the most amazing ancient Indian fabric and they've molded them into shapes that what we always see as sari fabric. they you've turned them into beautiful dresses wearable so one of the issues that i have with you know the way we deal with textiles in india for instance because we see it as a sari right how many of us are wearing saris every day i have great saris i wear them for special occasions if it's a sit down black tie most likely i'll wear a beautiful sari but every day come on you know i don't want to not because i don't love it so each household household after household every woman's got her own stash of sarees that have either been bought or given by mothers and grandmothers but they lie in cupboards 
and they fade over time. But these are handmade. Mm. Sometimes like I've got my grandmother's sarees, my great grandmother's sarees. So I, you know, I started doing projects with Vogue where I would give my own sarees to top designers and say, "Can you make something that I can wear every day?" Mm. As a demonstration to others pull those sarees out of the cupboards and make them into beautiful jackets you know make them into capri pants but make them wearable livable garments that have the textile history it's about evolution isn't it because how do we and it is a big question how do we bring deep rooted and important traditions into practical modernity without being disrespectful of those traditions how do we do all that and Look, you know where's the future if you're wearing a saree as is good on you you know so i'm not for a purist they would not cut a sari right but a lot of us are not we are all sort of modern contemporary women scuttling around you know traveling all over so i really urge these women in india to pull the saris out of the cupboards dust them off and make them into some fabulous modern pieces that suits their lifestyle. So I mentioned that we worked on a panel with artisans of fashion and we were joined on that panel by some incredible Indian makers and designers and one of them was Naushad Ali who right. is just brilliant. Yes. Did you know about him before? Yes, I did. He Tell lives us in Pondicherry. He's one of the quieter designers, you know, working in publications, the ones who tom tom their wares <laughs> and some who are just experimenting and sitting in the periphery doing amazing job and not really sucked into the system and he's one of them he's doing very interesting things by bringing the traditional to the modern with a sustainability sparkle around it i met him in london he was part of the international fashion showcase at somerset house and what he's doing is working with traditional indigo and again i love when you hear this stuff because i just didn't know he blew my mind because his set was basically emulating the indigo pots that you would have in a traditional village and he was saying to me these pots have zero waste because they've never been emptied for 300 years yeah. you just keep adding the indigo as you need it and indigo is obviously a natural dye yeah but what he's doing now is looking at zero waste practices so every thread every scrap is being used which i find when i say every thread i mean every thread right mm. which i think is phenomenal but using amazing embroidery techniques with those waste threads so it's so interesting isn't it but my question was going to be where do you think the future of craft is headed in india and maybe you want to talk a bit about the kind of rise of the power of indian fashion because it's actually a really exciting time for india to be seen in not just traditional ways but in a ways that meld those two things the ancient and the modern you know my beautiful country is quite bipolar right so if you come there you'll see there's the rich and the poor the rural and the urban the english and the vernacular i mean the contradictions that just go mile long and so even with fashion on the one hand you have the over the top bridal wear as i told you like 40 billion us dollars per annum on the other side there is this rising voice of this quiet modern indian aesthetic that relies on handmade textiles the quietness of colors because people forget in this razzmatazz of bollywood that we have a 5000 year old history of traditions and sophisticated nuanced traditions right and so these young designers who i call the modernists postmodernists in india now they look at incredible architecture of our past they look at the music the carnatic music the south indian music the the sophistication of that language and they sort of translated into an aesthetic that speaks about the depth not just the bling 
And so for me, that is a very important movement in India because we need to reclaim the identity. I mean, I have no problems with Bollywood. It's entertaining. You can have a good laugh. We love going to Bollywood parties. We love dancing to their songs. I get it. But off late, I do feel Bollywood sabotages the culture of India. And so we need to have other pillars that can stand on their own so we don't just become a nation of dancers, <laughs> you know. It's, it's a very nuanced civilization. And it comes back to that whole thing of the single story, doesn't it? I mean, it's a different way of looking at it, but when we look at those single stories of the past that dominates this culture, which was, even if you go back to the beginning of our conversation around I can't even bear to say it, British Raj. I mean, yuck, I'm embarrassed to be British when I think about that stuff. But if you look at that single story, which was this is how power works, this is what's important, this is not important, etc. We still struggle with that. Like, how do we elevate marginalised or previously marginalised stories? How do we make sure that there's truth running through our stories? How do we give story ownership back to the people who should be the ones championing it? All that, right? You just got to be slow thinkers, slow movers. Like, you know, it's not just about production of fashion that should be slow. Editorially, as writers, we need to spend more time exploring stories. You know, and I feel like we keep talking about circularity in terms of environment and manufacturing and production, but there has to be circularity in your storytelling. You know, it has its own value chain. It has its own touch points that you, we have to do justice to the makers, the creators. There's a whole string of people who are part of the storytelling, right? Mm. So it can't just be a dress that's propped up on a ramp. There were hands, invisible faces and hands that created it. And they should be equally recognized. And I think there are compelling ways to tell the story where we do justice and we, where we celebrate. So this is not like one of the sad, oh my gosh, the NGO story, I can't read about it anymore. This is a celebratory story. So I think editors, by and large, should commit to literally rejigging how editorials are worked out because the old system doesn't work, you know. It's not just the model on, in that fancy dress anymore that is a compelling story. It has to dig deeper. Mm, I love this. We should do this. Oh, we already do, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I want to finish up by talking more about mindfulness to come full circle. See how I did that? Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> how can we as consumers and lovers of fashion or makers because lots of our listeners actually are makers too how can we harness that mindfulness to make fashion just do better the power of your wallet like mindfulness as an ideology must exist of course in your superior brain as we call it right but ultimately that mindfulness as an act has to be demonstrated through how you use your money and that's where individual choice matters. So I find it, if someone says, oh, it's too big a problem to solve, like, you know, okay, I think I'm mindful, but how do I demonstrate? What difference does it make? I think that's just being lazy about your own power. I think the whole idea of mindfulness is literally you're slowing down to reconnect in a more engaging manner. Right? So you can actually bathe mindfully, you can eat mindfully, you can consume mindfully, that your entire life experience can be mindful. And when you're mindful, what it teaches us first is a sense of empathy, that you are interconnected to everyone around you, to everything around you, animate or inanimate. So that level of empathy, when you reach that level of empathy, it's almost like what people discover when you meditate, when you're on a spiritual journey, that 
what I do matters. This interconnectivity is literally what people like run away to ashrams for. And but this is a practice that you can implement in your daily life. We are not connected with anything that we do. We are always in a rush. We are, we can't even stay still without looking at a phone for, you know, three minutes. So mindfulness is like any good habit can be practiced over and over again till you get out of your own head and engage with the world and empathize. And the moment you empathize, then you know the tree is beautiful. How would you ever want to destroy that tree? Or why would you even hurt somebody else? That you would be a great listener, that you'd be a great engager, and hopefully you'd be a conscious consumer. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your mindfulness around fashion with us. And... Come to Bali. Come <laughs> to Bali and we'll practice mindfulness was. together. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm coming. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. Tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you